while you're turning a couple of things, let me uh, let me ask you to uh, be praying. Um, Mrs. Casey had sent me an email this week from her niece uh, out west, and uh, she the niece is in a meeting, a panel meeting this uh, coming Friday, one uh, thirty their time, which it's out west. My guess is we're talking. Um, we're talking probably 10.30 or 11 o'clock here. I guess that's what would be time-wise. So point is, I'd like for you to pray for this niece of Mrs. Casey. She came out of a lifestyle of homosexual. She was saved and she was a lesbian. She left that lifestyle. She is a Christian who's living for the Lord. And she is on a panel discussion in a high school this Friday. And uh, she's asked for us to pray for her because there'll be uh, a lesbian on the board, on a the panel. There'll be a homosexual man, and then there'll be her, and then there'll be a heterosexual. So there'll be uh, uh, technically it's a sort of split panel for a discussion in a public high school, government high school. And so she's asking for your prayers as she presents the fact that there is an answer to homosexuality as the world presents it. This world says, no, no, you're born that way. And the Bible says, oh, no, you're not born that way. It's all sin is a choice. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned in his own way to what he does. Nobody put anything on you that's sinful. If it's sinful, it wasn't forced on you. It is a choice of the will. And don't ever forget that. And so this lady will be taking a stand in this arena. And may I tell you, the devil will obviously fight her for all she's worth. And uh, so you and I need to pray and ask God to make her light shine brightly in that case. Second thing, let me share with you. Uh, I, it slips my mind as often when you get in a pulpit, if you don't write something down, you, 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 it'll slip your mind. There is a passage of scripture, and it simply says that... Um, um, they that love thy law, nothing shall offend thee. Somebody tell me where that is. 165 of 119. Psalm 119, 165. Somebody read that to me. Did I get it close? Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend thee. Let me say this to you, that... Um, as a Christian, and uh, if you are one, then let me urge you to take Psalm 119, 165 into your heart. And don't let this world rob you or distract you or distress you or cause you anxiety. Because you know what? I I'm coming to realize more and more people cause people trouble. People cause people trouble. And the thing about that is, that's just a given. We're all going to stay here. We're all people, and we're going to stay here until the Lord gets us out of here. So the fact is, we're going to have to learn to live with people. With that said, let me tell you what not live with. Don't let people all the time upset you and offend you and upset you and aggravate you and anger you and cause you anxiety. Don't do that. Live above that. Live above that. It is not worth the ulcer it'll give you. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Live above it. Don't live beneath it. And you'll be a happier camper for whatever time the Lord leaves you here. Now, all that was free. The rest is going to cost you. 
Romans 5. I want you to see it, please. Romans chapter 5, look at the first five verses. Romans 5, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. First of all, let me thank many of you who made comment both by contacting me personally and after the fellowship, before the fellowship, after the service this Sunday, concerning last Sunday's message from this text of Scripture. I appreciate your comments. I appreciate your input, and I appreciate your questions. And may I say that uh, encouragement to any preacher is when people listen enough to know that uh, the Word of God works in their hearts. And I appreciate the comments you made, that God's Word worked in your heart and dealt with you about some matters. That's always the point of the Scripture, is that it works on us personally as the Holy Spirit uses it. With that said, I was going to preach today on uh, why are we rejoicing what. I was going to move into chapter 5, verse number 3. I went to my study on uh, Monday, as I often do, and opened my Bible early in the morning at home, and then went to the office. And as I did, the Lord redirected my heart back to verse number 2. And so I will apologize for those of you who thought I was going to be preaching on verse 3 today. I'll go back to verse number 2 and pick up really where I left off last week with some things that I feel like I need to say and make the truth there just a little more um, maybe clear and maybe in some cases a little more pounded a little harder into the depths of our hearts so that we walk away from here being absolutely assured of what the text is saying. First off, I'd call your attention and remind you that Romans chapter 5 is one of the great classic chapters of the Bible concerning the security of the believer. If you know people who are sort of wavering on their faith in Jesus Christ, this is a great chapter for those folks to dive into and dive into and to, to study, meditate on, think on, and hide it in their hearts. It's a passage of Scripture that I believe part of its purpose is toward that end, is to give God's people the assurance of their salvation once they have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a chapter on eternal security. Therefore, the verse word, first word of the text starts out, therefore, and of course, therefore is there for this reason, that it bases what it's about to say on what has been said. In chapter 3, much of what's been said in chapter 3 lays the groundwork for what chapter 5 is saying, and that is to say, therefore, being justified by faith. We've hammered away at justification by faith in chapter 4, and we talked about Abraham who who, uh, discovered it, and we talked about David who disclosed it and explained it. We did all that, and now you come to chapter number 5, and Paul says, now you're justified by faith, and we know what that's all about, based on that fact that you're justified, and that's assuming you are. If you're in this service today, uh, hopefully there's been a place, a time, a spot somewhere in your past that you could put your finger on and say, right there, I came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. No, lightning didn't flash, stars didn't flash, and the earth didn't quake, but I, right there, I heard God's Word, and God's Holy Spirit spoke to me through God's Word. I didn't see visions, I didn't have dreams, I just was convicted of my need of Jesus Christ, and right there, I trusted Christ, I believed on Christ as my Savior, I believed on His work of the cross, what He did. And so you could say, therefore, I'm justified, I am justified by faith. 
So if you are, if you aren't, you're in a good place to be. There is a sense in which this is a place where people come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is a, I used to say fraternity ward, and that, of course, is not the right word. It's a maternity ward. This is where people come into faith in Jesus Christ and go on to maturity. In context of this verse of Scripture, these folks had come to faith in Christ, and now Paul is saying to them, let me tell you some things that you have because you have come to Christ. And he starts out with the first being peace with God. We have peace with God. If you want some assurances of your salvation, then one of them is that you have peace with God and there should be no greater assurance of your salvation that in your heart of hearts, you know between you and God, everything is just fine. And that's what nobody outside of you can take away from you nor give to you. No preacher can stand in a pulpit and make you certain of your salvation any more than I can make the cars in the parking lot fly. That comes from within with God's Word and His Spirit working tandem to help you understand what God has done, accomplished, and is even now ready to bequeath to you. The fact is, this verse of Scripture is saying this, this is an assurance of salvation. That in your heart of hearts, you know you're right with God. That's an assurance, and it is this very thing. We have peace with God. didn't come through our works. Verse 1, it came through the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, by whom also we have. The second thing you have that ought to give you assurance of your salvation is access by faith into this grace wherein you stand. This grace that he talks about is justification by faith. If you have, in verse 1, been justified by faith, then you are standing in this grace, justification by faith. That's what that grace is. But there are two other passages where the word access is found in the New Testament, you recall. And one of them is in Ephesians chapter 2. The other is in Ephesians chapter 3. And both of those passages, it's talking about access to God. Paul wrote all three of the usages of this word access in the New Testament. And I believe you can say in this verse of Scripture, what he is saying, we have access uh, by God's grace into this justification or by faith into this justification process, but also we have access into God's presence. That means that if you have your prayers answered, if you pray and God answers, that means you're justified by faith because the only people that God gives access to himself are people who have been saved by grace through faith. So the only way you're going to get into God's presence is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ first in salvation and then access to the Father by the same faith. That's the only way you get there. And by the way, it doesn't say by any God. It says in access to God. The ideal is that it won't do and won't matter to have access to Allah. Allah's not this God. There's no other God like this God. There is one and one only of this God, Jehovah God, the creator of the universe. So this is not anything to do with Islam. This is nothing to do with Buddha. This is nothing to do with Shintoism. This is nothing to do with the God of Mormons. This is not to do with the Jehovah's Witness God. This is the God of the Bible who had a son who died on a cross for our sin and was raised again the third day for our justification. That's this God. And the concept of this is that we have access to that God. We have access to this God. He's our God. That's why we can pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The only way you can pray that prayer is because you've been justified by faith and you have access by faith into this grace and by access to the Father. Now what also I called your attention to before in verse 
Number two was the fact that he says, wherein we stand. I, I, every time I read that phrase, I'm reminded when I was a kid and I heard a, a preacher talking about standing, and it is one of my favorite words, standing, in, uh, in the Scripture. But I remember a young boy, this man, this pastor in the South was talking about this young boy who was selling a mule. And uh, being on the farm, I was quite acquainted with mules. We did a lot of the plowing in our fields with mules and, and uh, learned to get the yee, gee, and the haw. You know, the mule, the mule smart, knows right and left. I'm, I'm impressed. But anyway, I'd plow with those mules, and I'm, I'm familiar. So one day there was a pastor who visited, and he was talking about this boy who had a mule he wanted to sell. And my grandfather was talking with him, and this man was talking loud enough. I heard the story. And I've heard it many times yet and since in pulpits. And it was simply that this this uh, man wanted to buy this boy's mule. And the boy said, let me tell you something. He can't run fast, but he can stand fast. If you know anything about mules, that's the absolute truth. I mean, they, they, they stand. That's about all they do. Just stand, lazy-like, you know. And you really have to get on to them to get them to do anything. But they stand fast. Well, the fact is, every time I think of this word in verse number 2, at this wherein we stand... I think of that mule. He stands fast. Doesn't run fast. He may not make a lot of progress, but he stands fast. The good news for us is we can make spiritual progress and we can stand fast in it. There is no wishy-washiness about the salvation that the Bible herein is discussing. So we have peace with God, access by faith into this grace, which is also access to the Father. And then a third thing in verse number 3, it, the, having the first two of these things gives us this third one, and it says we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's the third thing you have. And whether you realize it or not, as I close the service last week with this point, I begin it today. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. A couple things some folks misunderstood, and I don't want you to do that. First off, understand the word hope in this context, as is often the case in the Bible, is not something you do. It's something you have. Understand that? It's not something you do, it's something you have. Verse number 2, verse number 2 says, Rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And it is not a word that you do, it's a word that you have. It's something I have, it's not something i got to do. I hope, boy, I'm hanging on there and hoping. No, that's not what this word is. This word hope means this is something you have, not something you do. And what this word means is certainty. Certainty. This verse of Scripture says, literally, the ideal carries with it, we rejoice in the certainty of the glory of God. I rejoice in the certainty of the glory of God. The issue then becomes, and what we wanted to get in more a little detail last week and did not have the time, the question is then, what is the glory of God in this context? First off, I would tell you several things that will help you understand it. First off, the glory of God is the expression of his person, of who he is, the expression of his person. I don't know how to express it any better than to say that when Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 20, he says that we are ambassadors for Christ, ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 20. The ideal of an ambassador is we are to be the expression of Jesus Christ, to do, to be, to say what he would do, be, and say if he were here. So I'm to be to this world everything that Jesus Christ would be to this world were he here. I'm supposed to be his ambassador. I'm supposed to be the expression of his person. 
And I'm saying to you, the same goes for us regarding God the Father. We are to express the goodness, the godliness, the holiness, the, all the attributes of God. Every Christian, as much as in us is, is to convey that kind of person to this dying world. That's why the verse of Scripture, Let your light so shine. Glory. Let your glory so shine that this world may see your good works, good activity, good actions, and may do what? Glorify your Father which is in heaven. When your glory matches His glory, good comes. When your glory is only for your good and you're honoring self rather than Him, nobody gains. But when your glory, when you let your light so shine, when you let your life so reflect the glory of God, then He is glorified and the work to which He's left you here to do is advanced. So what this word, this ideal of glory in this context is, is for you and I to understand very simply that it is an expression of God. Let me show you some things about this. To me, this is one of the exciting truths in the whole of the New Testament. Look over, if you would, to the book of Hebrews. We have already preached through this book here, and I have no intention to preach it again. I'm not going to live long enough to get through the whole of the New Testament, let alone uh, go over books again. But Hebrews chapter 1, let me call your attention to a, a very interesting verse in chapter number 1. 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, we covered at the very onset of our study of Hebrews years ago. It says, God, who at sundry times in divers or in a multitude or a diverse manner, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us. He did so by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Watch verse 3. Who, he's talking about that son of verse 2, who, the Lord Jesus Christ, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. I want you to see the phrase there. Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. He's the expressed image of His person. The word brightness in that verse of Scripture in the Greek language carries with it this sort of direct kind of definition. It means off flash. <laughs> off flash. Some call it and some translate it in one definition, outshining. The outshining. The outshining of God. Jesus Christ is the outshining of God the Father. The outshining, the off-flesh of, of God. That's what Jesus Christ is. That's what the context of this verse says. He's the expressed image of God. There's a reference point in the sense in the Scriptures, you come to the Old Testament, references about God and His brightness. Uh, many folks even believed, in fact, years ago when, uh, when uh, Brother Clarence Stubblefield was with us, Brother Stubblefield had some very uh, direct interpretations of the Scripture. And one of them is in the Old Testament that he believed that God is light. In the context that a brightness so bright and so brilliant that nobody could look upon him. He says, you think the sun is bright when it starts to set and you're driving into it. You don't have a clue of what God is like because his brightness is so great it can't even be fathomed by man. Well, I, I don't have any problem with that at all. I believe that's true. And consequently, that's how God conveys the idea that you and I sort of express image of himself in whatever limited ability we have now. And someday that ability will be expanded when we meet the Lord. 
And consequently, that's what this passage of Scripture is about. Let me take you back where we were some weeks ago. In fact, a week or so ago to Romans chapter 8. The whole of Romans chapter 8 is a great text about this. But Romans chapter 8 and uh, verse number 29 fits Hebrews 1 and verse 3. It says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You know, I thought we ought to have this verse on our, our walls. You know, you have, walk into people's homes and you see plaques all over the place and you see mottos on the wall and everything. Every Christian... Every child in our Sunday school ought to grow up with the idea that this is the ultimate goal that God has for every human being. That you conform to the image of His Son, of God's Son. That's what God's working on. God's plan for you is one, to conform you to the image of God's Son. And ultimately, that's what you're going to be. Now, you can, you can do whatever you think now in the sense that you can go your way doing your thing, thinking you may be accomplishing all God wants. But unless you are conforming to the image of God's Son, you're missing God's ultimate plan for you. So, by the ideal of Romans chapter 5 verse 2 is saying, you should rejoice in the absolute certainty that we who have been saved, justified by faith, are going to be glorified, made like the Lord Jesus Christ, and I might add, not to become a God. Not to say that I'm going to be a God like God is a God. That's not what it says. I'm going to be conformed to His likeness. And I say to you that that's exactly what God has in store for you. Philippians chapter number 3, verse number 20. For our conversation, that word means our manner of life. Our conversation is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. That verse of Scripture says very simply, this whole idea of our bodies being what they are, how in the world are we going to get to a point where we're going to be glorified like the Lord Jesus Christ? It'll all take place in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. When the Lord comes and our bodies are changed and they are changed, this, that, as wrong as 1 Corinthians 15 verse 34 said, they were sown in weakness. They'll be raised in power. They were sown in dishonor, but they're going to be raised in glory. And that's what he's saying here. When we have the image of Christ, we shall have the glory of God as the scriptures teach that we shall. It's an interesting reason because you see why people need to be saved and takes on a whole new idea. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. That's reason enough. All are sinners. Sinners need to be changed to saints. All have sinned, but there's something else. And they have come short of what? The glory of God. These folks are not like the Lord Jesus. And God's plan for man is that every man will become like the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll conform to the likeness of the Lord Jesus. And so because mankind is not that way, a transformation of grace has to take place. And the way God does it is very simple. First, through conversion and ultimately through glorification. I live the Christian life from the time I've been saved by the grace of God at the age of 11. And from the time I get home to glory, whether I die a natural death or whether it's the Lord's return. Whatever the case may be. From that point to that point, there ought to be an obvious osmosis, a change in my life. From glory to glory. And then ultimately glorified to be like the Son 
forever. Something else to be noticed in this idea, the process of every believer of being changed is a process that has been planned for. God in His Word planned that very simply, that as we read, as we study, as we hide God's Word in our heart, we're being conformed to the glory of God. And the consequence of that is that we move from one level of glory to another. I hope you'll not forget 2 Corinthians 3.18, read it to you last week. I'll read it to you again. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass. And by the way, the ideal of glass confuses some folks. It means, and to us, it means mirror. Mirror. You look in a mirror. As we beholding in a mirror, the glory of God or the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. It's saying, you look in a mirror, as you do, you don't look at a mirror just to admire yourself. I hope you don't. I hope you look at a mirror and say, I want to see what I need to do to myself. You know, if I need to comb my hair, I need to straighten my tie, whatever I need to do, I look at the mirror and it gives me a directive. It sort of is a standard. It gives me a concept of the standard of what I need to be. I know what the standard is and I look in the mirror and see if I've met it. If my face is dirty, then I need to look in the mirror and clean it off. Whatever the problem is, I, I can look in the mirror. Well, the ideal is that the scriptures are the reflection of God's will for us. You look into the mirror of God's word and you can see how you match up. How am I doing? How many men in this room, for instance, how many men in this room raise their voices to their wives? Don't tell me. I don't want to know. But let me tell you something. You shouldn't do that. Scriptures are very clear on that. That you are to speak kindly, graciously. Now, if you don't, if you get upset and angry and get all bent out of shape and then you just let fly what lets fly, then my friend, you got some work to do. And the scripture says, here's the standard. You're not meeting it, so shape up. How many of us in this room uh, do other things? You know, sometimes uh, you use language that is not becoming a Christian. I don't want to know. But the fact is, if you just begin to pick up on what the world says, both in television, by the way, radio, I, I, I'm disappointed with men that don't, Rush Limbaugh a few days ago, I, I, I was surfing channels going my way to a visit and I turned on and he, and he went off on a tirade of some language that God help him. He didn't have to use that. Bad language does not make you a bigger person. In fact, it shows how little you are that your vocabulary doesn't expand enough that you could express yourself in terms of a passion without pulling something from some kind of vile context. You don't have to use bad language. And our young people ought to learn that they ought not use bad language. They ought to learn that you can express yourself. If you need to take down every night a dictionary and just read through the words and see what kind of words I ought to use in what kind of context, you can expand your vocabulary without picking up on the world's language and disgracing yourself. And yet folks do it all the time. I hope you don't. The scriptures hold themselves up as a mirror and said, make sure you don't use any language that's not becoming of a Christian. Oh, the list of things we could do and that might do are wrong are, are oh my, they're so, so long it would take all the hour to go over them. So the point is this, that's why preachers don't get up and just mention each individual sin that we need to address. Scriptures just say across the board, don't sin. Abstain from every appearance of evil. Don't get into something that you know where it's going to lead. 
Don't get around something that has the indications or has the association of wickedness. Don't, you don't need to be into that. Abstain from it. And the Scripture says when you look into God's Word and then you comply with what the Scriptures say, you're moving from glory to glory. You're becoming more like ultimately what God designed for you to be like. And you can do it on a day-to-day -day basis by reading His Word. I, I love the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. And John 17, one of the things he said there in our Lord's Prayer, said, The glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. He said, The glory, the Lord Jesus Christ said, The glory that I had with you, my Father, is in essence before the world began, I have given to them. How do you do that? Well, let me tell you. Nobody is more one with the Father than when you're one in obedience to this. When you bring your life into conformity, into parallelism to what the Bible teaches, you're about as one with the Father as you could ever get. And so the point made is, He gave us His glory. He has given us His glory as we take up His Word and we read it and we meditate on it and we change from where we are to where we ought to be and that change just keeps on happening day in and day out. The good news is that as long as we read it. Some people got the idea you got saved and that's it. Never pick up a Bible. Not faithful in church, Sunday school, worship, Sunday evening, Wednesday. They just think you get one dose and that's enough. That'll take care of you. What that expresses is that all you is that as fast as you want to conform to his likeness? We do what we want to do. We do what we want to do. Is that as fast as you want to conform to his likeness? Is picking up his Bible once a week, is that enough? Is that going to get you into his likeness as much as you want to get there? I want to get there fast. I want to leave what I am to what I ought to be, and I want to get as close as I can so when the translation takes place, it'll be very simple. You know, I don't want major surgery done on me when it's getting ready to go to heaven to be glorified. I want to be close. I don't like needles. I don't like shots. And I don't know what the Lord's using, but I don't like any of that. Point is, I want to be able to be quick, and I know it in His power. He can do it in a flash. I know that. But my point is this. My responsibility is to cooperate with Him. Let me tell you something. You see, there's a sense as you read God's Word and you come along to, to read it, study it, obey it, comply, you know, comply to it. There's a sense in which there'll be times when you're more in the glory of God than you were. Let me give you a good illustration of this, and it happens often. Look in your Old Testament, second book of the Bible. Second book of the Bible. And look, if you would, please. Exodus 33. Look at verse number 18. Exodus 33 and verse number 18. Exodus 33, 18. Moses, and this relates to the receiving of the commandments, the Ten Commandments. Exodus 33, and he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Moses said that to the Lord. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Verse 20, and he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see my face and live. Remember, before Jesus Christ died on the cross, God was unapproachable. And when Moses talks to God here, and he says, I want to see your glory. He said, Moses, there's only one problem. 
nobody's ever seen my face and live to talk about it. And that doesn't seem to deter Moses. The Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me. Thou shalt stand upon a rock. And he says, It shall come to pass when my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cleft of the rock and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Then chapter number 34, look at verse number 27. Exodus chapter 34, look at verse number 27. And the Lord said unto Moses, Exodus 34, 27, Write these, or write thou these words, for after the tenor of these words I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. And he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water. Look, if you were at the Lord, eating won't have a whole lot of interest to you. Now listen to me carefully and don't get offended, okay? Oh, I'll get offended. I don't care. Do whatever you want to do. That's your business. You see, when you come to church on Sunday morning, you're sitting through a sermon, and all you can think about is eating. You get the picture? You're not with the Lord. <laughs> you're not even with His Word. You're out somewhere wandering around all over the world and thinking about stuff that's non-essential, unimportant, and useless, and all that. Let me tell you something. If you were with the Lord, eating would not be high on your priority. Be a lot of things not high on your priority if you were in the presence of the Lord. So when we come to church, I think that's why you ought to try to train your brain. And training brains is hard. Brain training is probably the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life. But to train your brain not to let it wander all over the world. Don't think about what you're going to do after services. Don't think about what you're going to do tonight. Don't think about what the week holds. Don't, it's like going to sleep, you know. You lie down to go to sleep and you start thinking about all you got to do all week, you will not sleep. Well, if you come to worship and you think about everything in the world but the Lord Jesus and His Word, you won't worship. Most likely worry is what you'll do. You'll start thinking of everything and you'll be overwhelmed by it. When Moses was up there, there really wasn't anything else to capture his attention. The Lord was there and all he could think about was him. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Verse 29, it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in Moses' hands, when he came down from the mount that Moses knew not or wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone. They were afraid to come nigh to him. And Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him, and Moses talked with them. Afterwards all the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them in commandment all the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. Till, and till Moses had done speaking with him, he put a veil on his face. When Moses went in before the Lord, he would speak with him. He took the veil off until he came out, and he came out and spake unto the children of Israel that which he was commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses... <coughs> Excuse me, that the skin of Moses' face shone, and Moses put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. First off, understand there's no need of us starting a new religion, and it's called the veiled fellowship. There's no need for that. There's no need for somebody getting an idea that we need to all start wearing a veil when you, when you come and talk to each other. That's not what this is encouraging nor teaching. What this is teaching is something that happens in your life and mine on a regular basis, probably. 
It is the kind of thing in Moses' case, he goes up and he meets God concerning the Ten Commandments and the brightness of God's character was so great, so overwhelming, as one black preacher brethren said, Moses got that glory all over his face. And he did. And when Moses left the Lord and he came back down the mount and he met those people, it was an interesting thing. Those people were afraid of him. You know why you're afraid? Usually you're uncomfortable. If you're uncomfortable with something, you're not too invited in. You know, it just doesn't feel at home. It just doesn't feel too good. And what they saw in Moses' face did not make them feel comfortable. Listen to me. Sometimes the more you conform to the likeness of God, you'll sort out your friends and your company. Folks will look at you and say, well, guys, he's a nut. She's nuts. They want to pray over their meals. They want to go to every service in their church. They read their Bibles every day. They pray all the time. They pray over their kids, pray they're going to get sick. They pray over their kids when they have challenged decisions. But, I mean, they go nuts in this thing. They just carry it to the ultimate. And they're going to look at you and say, I, I, don't, I don't feel comfortable around these people. You know what I mean? Let me tell you, my friend, if you feel comfortable with the Lord and He feels comfortable with you, stay your course. Don't worry about what people think. And don't make your judgment on the basis of accepted by them or unacceptable to them. That's not what the decision is here. Moses was unconcerned about what the children of Israel thought when they saw his face. He was only concerned about one thing, that he had spent 40 days and 40 nights with the Lord. And his life reflected it. You spend 40 days and 40 nights with the Lord, your life will reflect it. Will your life face come away shining like some brightness that people see and notice? I don't know that, but I know this. You can't spend 40 days and 40 nights with the Lord without it affecting your life forever. And that's exactly what it did here. Now listen, here's what happens to us. We come to a Sunday morning service or a Sunday night or a Wednesday night service or a Sunday school hour and we hear from God through His Word and He teaches us and boy, our hearts are, are, are stirred by the truth we hear. We're excited because right there in God's Word we see it, we have been encouraged, we've been exhorted from it and boy, we, we just somehow, we have this sense of, of, of new uh, energy and new uh, spiritual dynamic that comes about us and we, we just are thrilled with it. Now here's the thing, so to speak, we have got the glory of God on us. And then what happens is we, we get up from the service and we start mixing and mingling with people. And somebody will say something to us and all of a sudden we'll notice the glory fading. They may say something that we didn't necessarily agree with or, or say something may uh, upset them and we aggravated them or whatever and they said something and all of a sudden we notice we don't feel what we did a few moments ago. You know, I was spiritually excited. I was spiritually stirred and now I'm losing some of that. That's the idea here. It's the same thing when you come to your own private devotion time, your quiet time, and you read the word quiet place, and alone place, and you and the Lord had a wonderful time. And your heart was, as Luther said, I believe, or Wesley once said, my heart was strangely warmed, stirred. And as one wrote, I sensed his presence in my heart more than before. Only to get up, go out the front door, get in a car, and turn on a radio, and some ungodly something take place, and you notice the glory fading again. Now, I tell you, this is exactly what was with Moses when he came off that mountain and met these people. The glory faded. 
Oh, it didn't fade for a while. He covered his face and uncovered it as he went in before the Lord. But in time, it faded away, and you won't read any more about it. Let me tell you something. Someday, sometime in our future, under God's plan, we will enter a glorified state when we will never leave that sense of God's presence as Moses sensed it here. Never to have the glory fade ever again. And that's the excitement in the Christian life, that there is a state in which we're going to receive and arrive under God's work and under God's plan that will make us like the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way, in such a way that we never change again. Listen, we're not going to be what we are now. We're going to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me quickly take you to two passages and we'll be gone. First one is in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Notice, if you would, Colossians 3, and look at verse number 4. Colossians 3, verse 4, the transformation to a glorified state takes place when Christ comes. That's what the verse and several verses of the Bible say. Colossians 3 and verse 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. That's the ideal of the resurrection, taking us out of here, changing us, transforming us. Then it's at that point we'll appear with Him in a glory, in a glorified state, technically. Then notice also there's, while we're in the flesh and on earth, we have to cooperate with God. So verse 4 talks about the future of the glorification, but verse 5 says, but while you're waiting, verse 5, mortify. The Greek word means to deaden or to subdue, to bring under authority, as it were, and it means death. It's the same word from which we get our mortician word. It means to cause this to die, to be submitted, to be put under. And he says, mortify or deaden, therefore, your members which are on the earth. And a good question would be, what members are that? Honest answer, any part of you that can sin. Any part of you that can sin needs to be considered dead, subdued, and under his authority. Verse number 5 goes on, and it lists some, just in case you don't know of what it calls. Fornication, pornania, the sexual sins, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. The, the world's people are going to be receive the wrath of God for their participation in the little list of things in verse 5. And what he's saying, don't you Christian people who are not a part of this world get caught up in doing those things. And by the way, it's interesting that almost everything this world shows us and presents to us in its movies and its sitcoms and all of its Hollywood productions is to encourage every one of those. Have you noticed? The TV encourages that. It'll set you into a situation of ungodliness, just like the scriptures say, oh yeah, that's the way the pagans do it. That's what the pagans do, but don't you do it, and don't you observe it, because if you do, you'll get to a point where you soften your attitude toward it. You'll be like a frog in a kittle. You'll get to a point it won't bother you anymore, and it bothers them. And you get conditioned to it. Conditioning for the believer is a dangerous thing. So Paul said, count your body as dead to these things. Don't do them. But look at verse 7. Verse 7, in the which ye also walked, that is, before, sometime in the past, when you lived in those, or in that kind of lifestyle, verse 7 says, when you were lost, <clears throat> you did those things, and you lived that way. But verse 8, but now, there ought to be a difference of what you were to what you are. But now makes the transition. What you were, you did that, and you did those things, you liked those things, you enjoyed those things, that's one thing. But now... 
You're different. He also put off all these, and it lists another group, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Verse number nine, lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. And verse 10, and have put on the new man, now watch it, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of of him that created him. You see what you're heading toward? To change by knowledge of the scripture into the image of him who created you. That's what you're heading toward. You're supposed to be coming more godlike with every day you live on this earth. Every day you live through the knowledge of God's Word and His Spirit directing it to your heart and making it as it were to work out and flesh out, you're supposed to be coming more like God. The question is, are you? Are you laying aside these things that are listed here and they're no longer part of your life, though they once were? And are you changed from glory to glory and these things don't matter anymore? Let me tell you, it's what Pastor Peter said, Preacher Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. He said very simply, <clears throat> made a point, Peter's passage of Scripture written to us, I think. He says, The elders which are among you, I exhort you, who also an elder, and listen, a witness of the suffering of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. So Peter says, Now, first of all, what I'm about to say, I understand where we're headed. I understand what God is doing in our lives. I know what He's up to. He's changing us into His likeness, and I understand that. I know what we're up against. I'm a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. I know what He's up to. He's going to change us from glory to glory into the likeness of His Son. I know that. Okay, Peter, since you're a preacher and you know that, then what should we do in light of that ultimate goal? Verse number two, feed the flock of God which is among you. Feed them? Feed them what? The only thing Peter knew anything about. Feed them with God's Word. He said, you want people to change from glory to glory and be as prepared as they can for what God has for them? <clears throat> One way to do it. You simply feed them God's Word on a daily basis. And his, and the preaching of the Word is what his task was, but from a personal standpoint, it's each of us' responsibility to feed ourselves spiritually. You've been saved by the grace of God. I say to you that one of the fastest ways to mature in your faith is to be in God's Word every single day, no exceptions and no excuses. We have a tendency to excuse ourselves for every reason in the world. And yet, as Job said, I count thy word more necessary than my food is his essence of what he's saying. God's Word is more important than the regular food that I eat. And yet, so often, so many times, we haven't arrived there. This verse reflects our side of what God is doing and what He's up to. But I would urge you not to forget that it's God's side that gives us the certainty and the guarantee. Back over in Romans chapter 9, and verse 23 says, And that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He had afore prepared unto glory. I'm a vessel of mercy. And what he is saying in Romans 9, 23 is, he says that he might make known the riches, the, the glorious riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. That's the certainty of it. He has prepared afore what is only experientially 
happening to me now, but has judicially already happened. I'm as good as in heaven right this very minute. With God, it is an absolute done deal. Romans 8.30, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. I'm a done deal. And if you've been saved by the grace of God with you, it is a done deal also. And may I tell you, this is a, an important and encouraging thing for me. In Paul's writings... In uh, the book of Ephesians, this closing word, and this is the last passage I'll share with you. But in Ephesians, a passage of Scripture, chapter number 1, of all the things that Paul the Apostle could have prayed for, for these new believers at Ephesus, I call your attention to this fact. Sometimes we think we've got it down and we know what to pray for and we, we know what we ought to pray for new converts. In Ephesians chapter 1, in verse number 13, Paul prays this. He says, In whom ye also trusted... After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance under the redemption, until the redemption of the purchased possession, under the praise of his glory. Verse 15, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, Ephesians 1, 15 says, Verse 16, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Verse 17, what did he pray? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Get to know God. That's what he's saying. Get to know God. Get to know and understand how God works and get to know his wisdom and the revelation of the knowledge of himself. Verse 18, that he prayed also that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you might know, watch it, that you might know what is the certainty of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That's what he said. And you know what that is? The inheritance that's in for the saints, that which is reserved for them, what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints is, is to simply say what God has in store for those who have been saved by the grace of God is they're going to become like the Lord Jesus Christ in their totality. And I say to you that that's the hope that I have of glory. And every person in this room has the exact same thing. I was reading the other day, John chapter 6. You don't need to turn to it. But John chapter 6, verse 37, 38, 39. And I noticed something that I think I noticed for the very first time, though I've read it many, many times. It says, All the ones that the Father giveth me shall come to me. The second thing it says, it says, All that come to Christ will not cast out. That is, if any man who comes to Christ, he'll not cast him out. And then the third thing that that passage says is, All which the Father hath given to Christ, it said, Christ will lose none of them. Lose none of them. All that the Father giveth me will come to me. All that come to me I will in no way cast out. All those that come to me and that I don't cast out, none of them will be lost. Not a one. You talk about a guarantee. So the fact is my salvation is secure on this side, but it is also guaranteed over there because that's exactly what this business of being glorified is all about. Paul wrote it and wrote it in Colossians. Christ in you, the hope, the certainty of glory. Now that's the point and that's the issue. 
if Christ is in you, you're going to be glorified. But the point and the question on the table is, is Christ in you? If you died right where you sit this morning, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you'd go to heaven? Are you certain of that? Not based on what you have done, but based on what Christ did for you. Are you certain of your salvation? Is salvation a secure thing from your side? Whatever God does in salvation is total and absolute. No ifs and buts about it. But the issue, have you come to a place where you realize what the Bible said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? Come to a point where you understand, but God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And come to understand Romans chapter 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Have you come to that? Have you done that? Is salvation yours? Are you secure in it? Are you certain of it? The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, after this the judgment. So you will die, barring the Lord's return. So assuming that we all die, are you ready to die? Are you prepared to die? Are you ready to meet God? That's the issue on the table. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Is he there? Have you followed in the believer's baptism? If you know Christ, have you followed in the believer's baptism? Are you a member of a Bible-believing church? Do you read God's Word every single day? Bar none with no excuses. No whining about time and no complaining about I just can't get everything done. But taking your life in, in hand on a basis of priority of life. And nothing is more important than your relationship with the holy God of heaven. If there's priority adjustments to be made, then this is the place to do them. Whatever adjustments need to be made, God's waking to help, and He encourages them. Our Father in heaven, thank You for Your Word, and thank You for the truth of it. Thank You for the direction that it leads us and directs us. Thank You for the Holy Scriptures that we have to give us the guidance that we so desperately need in this world that's so lost. I pray this morning as we come to the conclusion of this service and sing our invitation song, may it indeed be an invitation. May we accept it as Your invitation for us to act upon what We've heard. And I pray even this morning that there'll be decisions made and people will come to faith in you. And Father, those who have been saved but have not followed your believer's baptism would come and be submissive to that and do what's right. So we ask, Father, your will to be done in that matter. And Father, we ask you now that you'll guide and direct us in this invitation and get glory to yourself through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? 282 in your hymn book. We sing the first stanza. If God has spoken to your heart, I ask you, invite you to come and allow someone to take a Bible and show you from the Scriptures how you can be saved. Or if you have other decisions you need to make, then the front pews are welcome to be used as altar. Or here at the front steps, you're welcome to use those. If God has spoken to your heart, the ideal is for you to act upon that which He has said. Be an obedient believer. And if you're here lost, please come. Let us help you. Let us take the Bible and show you from the Scriptures how you can know Christ and know for certain you know Christ. We'd be glad and honored to do so. As we sing, 282, Just As I Am. You come, please. Just as I am. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come?
Let's sing the second stanza, please. Verse 2. Would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? Thank you very much for your attention and for your time. I appreciate you being with us this morning. Thank you so much for coming, and I do appreciate our guests this morning. I have a, a visitor's card on Rob and Jennifer Massoni. Is that right? Very good. It's good to have you here in the services today. Appreciate your coming. God bless you. Good to have all of you here. Hope you will be back with us for the evening service tonight. We have the, the Sword Deaf College in our services tonight. We're honored to have them here. And uh, one of the gentlemen who will be speaking or actually signing the service, uh, Pete McClure, will be using our mission apartment tonight and maybe a couple of nights. So, uh, ladies of our church, if you might check just to make sure we're ready for him and uh, make sure we're ready for the entire group of these folks. They'll come in, but they'll leave after the service except for him. He'll be staying over a few days looking over our area here. So, please be back if you can. Look forward to a good service. Hope you'll come. Choir members, 5, men's prayer, 5.30, and the service at 6 o'clock tonight. May the Lord bless you. Our Father, we thank you again for a privilege we've had to be in your house this morning. And we thank you so very much for the opportunity in Sunday school, listening to your word taught. And we thank you for the worship service. And thank you for the message of the word that you've given to us. And I pray now as a pastor that you'll help me to practice that which we preach. And we pray that you'll help all of us conform to your likeness, to grow from glory to glory. And I pray, Father, that you would use our lives in our community to show this community what God is like. Father, we recognize we're not like you in totality. We never will be. We're not a God that's going to be worshipped. It's none of the things that the cults teach. But we do realize that one of the goals and the ultimate plan you have for us is to conform to the image of your Son. And we want to cooperate in this human setting as much as in us is to work with you in that regard. So work on our hearts. Help us to cooperate freely with you. Bless now, I pray, our guests this morning, our visitors, our friends, and thank you for the faithfulness of our members. We're grateful for them getting back to us, being with us. Please bless them. And those of our fellowship who have special physical needs, please touch and heal them and raise them up and get them back to us very, very soon. Bless as we go now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed. Uh-huh.